Take your Bibles this morning. Turn to the book of Haggai. As we continue seeing what God has to say to us in this book. Before we look into the text this morning, let's pray. Lord of heaven and earth, we come to you now to hear you speak to us. We know that we hear your voice in Scripture, for Scripture is your voice. It is powerful. It teaches us. It convicts us. It corrects us. It trains us in righteousness. It is all that we need in order to please you, in order to walk in a way um, that you would have us to walk, to think in ways that you would have us to think. We pray now, Father, that you would um, be at work in your people today. Help us gain hope from your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Several years ago, I was asked to speak at a family camp, camp in southern Ohio. And the only reason they asked me is I knew a pastor in this one church that asked me to come. So, Anyway, it was a big church. It was a gigantic church. It had multi-thousands of dollars. It had a budget. It had a youth programs. It had specialized ministries. Uh, it seemed to be reaching out to the community. I mean, it was impressive. And with that huge budget, with the ability to even afford their own family camp, um, with a ton of people in attendance, um, I figured God was at work in that congregation. With the attendance that large, with the budget that big, with so many ministries, you'd expect, God must be in this, right? Right? Well, that's the attitude of the people of Judah as they're in the rebuilding project of the temple in Jerusalem. These exiles who had returned to their land and beginning to rebuild the temple. You remember that they had neglected the building of the temple for over a decade and that God had called them to it, had challenged them and said, your actions indicate that you you want neither my power or my presence among you. And 23 days after that message from God, you remember, they responded in obedience, getting to work on the temple, and God said to them, I am with you. But within weeks, they're discouraged. Within weeks, they're discouraged. They believed the promise of God's presence, and yet they didn't seem to make much progress. They did not have the resources, they thought, to restore the house of God, or they did not have the resources to restore the house of God to the glory of the old temple that was under Solomon. They were saying, Lord, you rebuked us, and Lord, we repented, and we did exactly like you told us to do. Lord, we turn from our stubbornness and look to you to do great things for the glory of your name. So why isn't the temple? Why does it look like to us the temple is not going to be nearly as glorious as the temple that once stood? Lord, why aren't you in this? And so, discouraged by the apparent lack of blessing, they received another message from God on October 17th, 520 B.C. We read that message in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Let's look at it together. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, 
and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. What does God say to those who are discouraged and despondent when the work is small and it just doesn't seem like God is working? Well, hear this word from God. The first thing he says is press on. Press on. Verses 1 through 5. Let's look at those again. The seventh month on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. He says, press on. What keeps us from pressing on? What keeps us from pressing on? Well, here's one. Nostalgia. Nostalgia. Do you see that happening here? The past seems incomparably greater than the present. And there seems to have been maybe some exiles there who remembered the former temple. They had to be in their 80s. They've been in exile for 70 years. They have to be 80s or older, and they may have seen the old temple. They may have seen the glory of it. And they remembered that former glory of Solomon's temple. But you know how memory works, don't you? You know how memory works. The merry-go-round you rode as a little kid was so fearful right, in kindergarten. I don't know. Maybe you're not old enough to remember merry-go-rounds, but when I was a kid, we had a merry-go-round on the school playground, and you'd get on there, and someone would, on a, on a, uh, not concrete, but tar, um, a pavement, and they'd, they'd get that thing going, and you'd hang on, because if you didn't, you just flew out of it and landed on the pavement, right? That's back when they let us do things like that. But nevertheless, you remember that. Right? It's this incredible thing, and you go back and you visit your elementary school and you see that merry go round. It's not nearly as big, it doesn't look nearly as fast as when you were five or six years old. Or you remember that huge house down the street, and you go back. I can see one, this huge house in, in my little town, and we'd walk by it, we'd actually run by it. And it seems so gigantic. When you go back to it now, it doesn't seem that 
magnificent at all. Or, or the, the path used to run out into the woods, seemed to go on forever, and now as you go down that path, it's just a casual stroll. You know how memory is. You know, we look at the church in New Testament, we look at the church in New Testament times and we say, wow, if only we were as powerful as that. Or you may look at the church 200 years ago and say, wow, why can't we accomplish great things like they did? And it causes us great discouragement. Nostalgia oftentimes keeps us from pressing on. A trust in your own abilities will keep you from pressing on. Just like these people, we think that because of our great abilities and talent, we can accomplish great things for God. But then we don't seem to accomplish what we thought we could do. We found out that we cannot seem to achieve much in the present, and we cannot match the past. And so discouragement sets in. Your own expectations can cause you to to be discouraged and to not press on. We often have expectations. We have dreams. We have ways of thinking, surely God's going to work, and he's going to work in this way, right? Right? And when those expectations aren't met, we get discouraged and we start dropping off. We're crushed. But then do you find God saying, you're right, you're right. You're never going to match the greatness of the past. And you'll never achieve much in the present, so you might as well give up. Is that what you see God saying here? No. He says, work. Stay at it. Press on. Be strong. And work. You know what? Your ministry, your church may not be as big as the one in the city, but press on. I can think of a friend of mine, for example. I can think of a friend of mine who uh, I got to know in seminary. I had already graduated, and, and we saw this couple come into our church, and I remember saying to my wife, you know, I bet you that's a seminary couple. Let's take them under our wing. So we did. You know, they, we, were, we were good friends. He's now in Lafayette, Indiana. He's got this, I don't know, gigantic church. They've got an incredible outreach to the university at Purdue and all kinds of stuff. And it's amazing. It's amazing what Steve has done. It's not Steve, but he's got this incredible ministry that's unbelievable. And I'm in a town of... 700 people. You know it's easy to do? It's easy to look at that and say, oh, well, you know, I'm, right? Hey, your ministry may not be as big as the one in the city, but press on. You may discourage in the whole task of raising your children. Press on. Your work may discourage you, and you may think it's the most evil place in the world, and God says, press on. Just keep at it. Press on despite your hardship. Press on despite your hardship. Some people think that if God is in it, then it won't be hard. And that's wrong. And I know it's wrong because look at what Jesus says in John chapter 15. Turn there with me. John chapter 15. If God's in it, then it must be easy. If God's in it, then things will just miraculously happen. Right? Uh, John 15. These are words that really strike me. I, I have to call these to mind often. Matthew 5, or I'm sorry, John 15, beginning in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 
If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. (laughs) See what Jesus is saying? By the way, who is the one person in all the world who did exactly minister exactly the way God wanted him to. Jesus. And what did it get him? Crucified. You know, if you were to stand there, if you were to take today's standards and look at Jesus, you know what you would say? Wow. What a failure. Right? Works all this time, heals all these people, preaches all these wonderful sermons. What does it get him? He dies. Right? So when you're discouraged, you've got to press on despite your hardship. The world's going to hate us. It's not going to come easy. But God's at work. Press on despite your hardship. Press on despite your fear. In verse 5, he says, fear not. What are they afraid of? What are they afraid of? I think they're afraid of failure. Right? This just doesn't seem to be what we'd expect it to be. Right? We're building this temple. We're getting our resources together, and our resources are not going to get us to where it used to be. And God says, fear not. Fear not. The fear that God would not meet their expectations. Keep going, he says. Press on. No. So then does God say, gut it out? Get a grip and get to work? Is that what he says? No. He says, press on because of God's presence. Verses 4 and 5. Press on because of God's presence. I am with you. Now notice what God does not say. God does not say, press on. It's not as bad as you think. In fact, uh, he says the opposite, doesn't he? Yeah, he says, yeah, this temple isn't as great. You're right. It's not as great. As, as Solomon's temple. Um, it, it doesn't reach its former glory. How do you see it now? It's nothing. It's nothing, okay? God does not deny the way you feel. He does not deny the, deny the truth of the situation. It's often true that the work we do does not compare to what happened in the past or what is happening elsewhere. That's true, right? It's true, And God begins by acknowledging that these things, they're not as good as you expected. Okay? And and you know what? This is what we often do. Just the opposite of God. Someone says, ah, nothing's happening here. We say, oh yeah, something's happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not that bad. God doesn't do that. He doesn't say it's not that bad. He says, yeah, it's not as great as the former glory. You're right about that. It's not. What does he do? He says, turn your minds away from yourself and your expectations to what is true about me. All right, so the answer isn't um, gut it out, get busy. The answer is what? He says this, I am with you. 
not denying how bad it is, he does say, take your eyes off of your expectations and put them on me. I am with you. See, again, as he did in in Haggai's last sermon, he gives him the same word of encouragement. I am with you. Look around, it doesn't look like it. But I am with you. And he does that to encourage them. Take your eyes off of your expectations. Take your eyes out of what you think should be happening. Take your eyes about what other people are doing. Remember this, look at me. I am with you. Now, this is a covenanted presence, right? Because he said, I promised this when I took you out of the land of Egypt. Remember, when the tabernacle was consecrated, here's what God said in Exodus 29. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. It's his covenanted presence. I'm going to be with you. This is his gracious presence, right? They have to build the temple, a dwelling place of God among his people, but they haven't got it done yet. Nevertheless, because they're committed to it, God says, I'm with you, right? I'm with you now. Remember we saw this two weeks ago. Two weeks ago that God said, you're right, it's the already not yet of the Old Testament. Yeah, you gotta get the the temple finished, but I'm with you, I am with you, okay? You want to build the temple for the presence of God amongst your midst? Well, I am with you already. Here's his gracious presence. It's his dynamic presence. My spirit remains among you, right? I'm working. Even in this, I'm working. Even in what looks like to you, your paltry efforts, the spirit is with you. My spirit is with you. He is working. It's his sufficient presence. All you need is me. Right? Again, get what he's saying here. We look at the past, we look at now, we compare past, now, all those things, and we say, God must not be at work. And he says, I am with you. His presence is sufficient. You don't need anything else. You've got God. This is God's presence in Jesus. It all is summed up in God's presence in Jesus. Turn over to John 14. John 14. John 14, beginning in verse 15. Um, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now you see all that's going on here. The the presence of Jesus through the Spirit. Even the Father is going to make his dwelling with you, right? So 
This is God's presence in Jesus. All this is fulfilled in Jesus. Look, for example, this congregation has the spirit within it. God is here. God is here. I am with you. I am with you. And so you press on in faith, believing that God is present in Jesus. Now, what is faith? Faith believes the promises of God. Okay? Faith believes the promises of God. Now, I'm going to go off a little bit here because I think it's important that we understand what faith is. Okay? Um, I'm at back, back at LaRue. I've been preaching through the book of Hebrews, and we've essentially we've just fi- finished Hebrews 11 and 12. Hebrews 11, the great story of faith of the saints of old. And when you read that, here's what it boils down to. Faith, here's faith. Here's the simplest definition of faith. Faith is taking God at his word. All right? Faith is not, and I can remember this as, um, as a young person. I went to a Christian college, and oftentimes Christian colleges will say things like, we have this capital campaign, we're gonna, or we're going to borrow $3 million to build this, and we believe that God will provide for it. I remember seeing those kinds of letters a lot, right? Um, is that faith? No, I'd call that foolishness. Well, what is faith? If God says it, and everything looks contrary to it, you believe what God says. You believe what God says, okay? Faith is taking God at his word. If he says it, you believe it. And so God has said, I am with you. But it doesn't look like that. It doesn't look like that. Well, do you believe it? He's made, God is present in Jesus, and so faith believes God's promises. You see the unattainable past and the hopeless present. Well, rather than listening to the tale of your hopelessness, you need to tell yourself the truth of God's promises and remember them and believe them. Despondency says, I can't, therefore, I won't. Faith says, I can't, but he can, so I will. All right? That's what faith does. So be strong and work, because God is present and active, and you must be strong, and you must work. So when you're tempted to say, who can raise children in this wicked world? Or, what can a little congregation like ours ever accomplish? Or, you know, things were different 20 years ago, when we were young and alive and all kinds of good things happened. Remember what God says. He says, be strong and work because I am with you. Now, one last thing he says here in the the last few verses, press on because of God's ultimate purposes. That is, press on in light of what God is going to do. Press on in light of what God is going to do. Um, He says in verses 6 through 9 then, For thus says the Lord of hosts, by the way, He keeps saying Lord of hosts in here, right? What's that emphasize? The Lord of hosts means the Lord of heaven's armies. It's an expression in the Old Testament that means God's power. Oftentimes in some translations, instead of translating Lord of hosts, it it translates it Lord Almighty, okay? So it's talking about his power. So, um, for thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens 
and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. God achieves his purpose with the mighty working of his power. He achieves his purposes with the mighty working of his power. Now, when he says he's going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, he's not talking about a literal earthquake here. He's talking about what happens when God chooses to accomplish his purpose, when God visits and is going to do what he says, to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land And the nations is a way of speaking of how God moves to accomplish his purpose. For example, if you turn back just a few books to the book of Nahum, the book of Nahum, chapter 1, notice how Nahum describes the arrival of the Lord for vengeance, okay? Verse 2 of Nahum 1, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Now you see that he's using all this hyperbole to to give you the idea that when, when God arrives, it's a horrible, fearful thing, all right? At least when he's going to bring his vengeance, it's a... It's a horrible thing. And it points to the reality of God's coming and how creation and the nations respond to his cosmic worldwide work. In fact, this is quoted in the book of Hebrews. This little portion here is quoted from Haggai in the book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12. What does he say in Hebrews 12 verse 25? He says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Um, For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. There he's quoting Haggai and saying, God still is going to do this. God's still going to do this. All right? Now, the writer of the Hebrews quotes Haggai to refer to this cosmic work of God in the end of time, accomplishing his purposes. So what is Haggai saying? He's saying, what is that purpose? What is that purpose? Number one, to produce riches for his temple, right? These people look at their little rebuilt temple. It's not nearly as big. It's not nearly as glorious. 
It's not rich like the temple of Solomon was. And God speaks of how he will enrich his temple. He talks about riches here, doesn't he? In verse 7 and 8, he talks about riches, verses 7 through 9. The treasures that are God's. God says, you despair because the temple is not ornamented in gold and silver, like Solomon's temple. But remember that I'm sovereign over all the nations, and my purpose is to enrich this temple. His purpose is to produce glory for his temple, he says. I'm going to make it glorious. These people looked at the temple they were building and despaired because they could not see the glory of God like Solomon had seen. But God says, I will fill my house with glory and it will be more glorious than that of Solomon. He says, I'm going to do this to produce peace in the temple. The temple that, when Solomon built the temple, you remember, if you remember your history of Israel, the, the reign of Solomon was a reign of peace. And so that's what they're looking for. When Solomon built his temple, there was peace. And he says this rebuilt temple, but now this rebuilt temple reminded them that they'd once been exiles. And how they serve now a foreign emperor. And they experience no peace. Well, what do we do with that? I think we need to take seriously what Jesus says in Matthew 5 when he says, I've not come to abolish the law, and I think he's referring there to the whole Old Testament, but to fulfill it. At the end of of Luke, in chapter 24, you remember? He's walking with the disciples, these two people, to Emmaus. And as they're walking along, they're, they're, they're sad because the Messiah's been crucified and so forth. And you remember what it says? It said, Jesus took the scriptures, uh, at least reminded them, and went all the way from Moses to the end and showed how all of that pointed to Jesus. And I think that's real important for us to understand. It's a principle of interpretation we need to understand. Um, God is looking for the ultimate fulfillment of all these things in Jesus. How does he do it? He begins to fulfill all of these things in Jesus, his purpose in Jesus. Jesus elevated the fulfillment of this promise to a higher plane. For example, what does it say in John chapter 1, verse 14? John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And you maybe have heard this. But that term dwelling says that the word became flesh and he tabernacled among us. Right? It's the, he made, he tabernacled among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so you see here that Jesus elevates this to another, to a higher plane. He, he is now the meeting place. He is the tabernacle. John chapter 2, verse 21. Jesus said this, it's not, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was what? His body. What is Jesus claiming there? See, the temple of the Old Testament was pointing to me. I'm the temple. I'm the temple. Matthew 12, verse 6. 
I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. Right? 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're the temple. Okay, I, if I had a, a whiteboard behind me, I'd draw this for you, so imagine this, okay? Okay, I want you to see this. I want you to see a crescendo or a decrescendo that comes down like this. And then I want you to see another one that goes out like that. All right, on this side is the Old Testament, law, prophets, writings, okay? All of it comes down. All of it comes down and finds its fulfillment in Jesus. He embodies everything. The history, right? He embodies the history of the Old Testament. He embodies the law. He embodies the prophets. He embodies all the writings, all the poetry, everything. All of it is fulfilled in Jesus. All right? Then you got the other one coming out from him. Anybody connected to Jesus, those things become true. Right? The church is the temple. Uh, the local church is the temple. We are the temple. All right? Um, all those things that are attributed to Jesus is fulfilled in him and then in us. All right? And so that's what's happening here. Is God going to produce riches? Yeah. What are the riches? Well, you remember, the, you remember how Matthew includes the story of the Magi? No one else does, but Matthew does. Why? What's he saying by that little part of the story? He's saying this. The riches of the nation start coming to Jesus even when he was a baby. The riches of the nations, the riches that God promises come to Jesus from foreign people, right? And then the ultimate fulfillment you find in Revelation 21, if you want to turn there. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Okay? And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God lights its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And the gates will never be shut. There's the ultimate fulfillment of everything that Haggai was saying, all fulfilled in Jesus and then fulfilled ultimately at the end of time. God is going to fill this temple with glory. The temple foreshadowed the greater glory of the one who would come in fulfillment of it. The glory is greater for Jesus because Jesus will bring in people from all nations as worshipers. The glory of the Lamb will surpass the glory of Solomon's temple. And his glory shines in the new Jerusalem. Lastly, peace. God will produce peace. The temple fulfilled in Jesus will produce peace. What does Ephesians 2 say to us? Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinance 
that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both, both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom, all, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see all that there? Jesus is the peace. And then he makes peace by putting together this temple of the two peoples to make one new humanity, all of it for peace. See, all of this is pointing to Jesus. And so what God says is, press on because of God's ultimate purpose. Press on. So you've been called by God and Jesus Christ to serve him. You've been called to serve him in many ways. You've been called called to serve God individually. Are you growing despondent in what he's called you to do? You just think of your entire life, right? Raising kids, going to work, all the things that are your calling before God. You get despondent in that. You've been called by God to serve him as a congregation. Do you think you're too small and out of touch to accomplish anything worthwhile? God commands you then to press on. Press on. Don't give up. Press on because he's present with you. Press on because your small part serves his ultimate purposes. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can find hope in you. That, Lord, all we need is you. Help us to put to death our own expectations, our own trust in our abilities. Help us to put to death the nostalgia and everything else that would keep us from pressing on. If we want to press on, Father, and we do, we pray that you would help us to get a vision of who you are and what you've done in Jesus. And by that, Lord, encourage to press on. So help us to be strong and to work as you've called us to do. And we can do that because of Jesus and because of the ultimate purposes you have in fulfilling everything in him and in us. Help us then to look to you, to find in you the grace that we need. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.